Good morning. Hey, I wanted to add to that thank you. Uh, yesterday we were, I was anyway, overwhelmed by just the number of people who came out and, and cleaned, and uh, it felt like uh, church community, just people having fun, uh, hanging out, talking, getting stuff done. Uh, Pastor Sean and I made a list of things, like based on who we, how many people we think are coming, and by 11 o'clock, we were done through our list. So it was, uh, it was very awesome. So just thank you. I appreciate everyone who came out. Uh, hey, before we get started this morning, a couple of um, uh, a praise report and along with a prayer request. Those who were here yesterday, uh, Peg Haskell shared that her nephew uh, was hospitalized um, and was um, struggling with his life. And so they, we prayed in the back for a, a, a something to change. Um, and so is that at Brigham Women's Hospital and was uh, air, air flight medevac to the hospital, which he's, uh, they're going to do surgery either today or tomorrow. Tomorrow morning, try to remove blood clots that are in his brain. So... It's good news because yesterday morning they were telling his mom, your son's dying. But today they're saying, hey, there's hope. We're going to do some surgery. So it's a combination praise report. Things are moving. We prayed yesterday morning and and things are moving in the right direction. We just need to continue to pray that God continues to do a miracle for that family. And then lastly, there's a few of us, the Haskells, the Sorbos, uh, are homesick. There might be some others that are here. So we're just going to pause for a minute and pray. Pray for Peg's nephew. Pray for those who can't be here because of um, sickness or allergy or those kinds of things. So, Lord, we thank you that you hear our prayers. Lord, yesterday morning uh, was a, a doomsday kind of verdict, and we gathered together in the nursery back there, and we prayed that you would move on behalf of Peg's nephew. And, Lord, we see movement. We see hope now beginning to shine forth from uh, being in capable hands, to a bed opening up, to metaflights, to surgery scheduled. And Lord, we pray that you would continue that trend, that you'd continue to touch her nephew's uh, life, that you would uh, use doctors, use divine touch, whatever it is, Lord, to heal him and restore him back. Uh, Lord, we pray that your presence be with them, him and his family, that you would give them hope and peace, Lord, as they walk this journey. I pray, Lord, for those who can't be here this morning because they're not feeling well, like the Haskells or the Sorbos or anyone else, Lord, who's home listening to this. May you touch them and heal them this morning in your name. Amen. Okay. Hallelujah. Technology. Well, church, we're uh, in the middle of um, talking about Jesus and I got to tell you, uh, I think we're going to be here the rest of the year, um, right? I think uh, church life in general, we've, we've talked about a lot of important things, uh, but they haven't always centered around Jesus. It's been maybe like how you can live better and more of this or do better that or promises or Old Testament stuff or all good stuff, but um, Jesus is the reason for all of it. And so uh, I think we're going to hang out here for... For a while, so um, but more specifically, we're working through um, Jesus in the Gospels. And so last week we talked about Jesus in the Book of Matthew, 
And today we're going to talk about Jesus in the book of Mark. So, um, just getting my technology up and going. So as we look at, at the book of Mark, just a couple of things before, before we jump uh, right into it. Um, who's, who is Mark written by? Most scholars believe that it was written by John Mark, who you read was uh, mostly Paul's companion. Later on, Peter made reference to him. Uh, most scholars believe that it was John Mark who penned this gospel, and he did that by uh, collecting Peter's teachings. And so some people refer to this as uh, the, uh, Peter's gospel recorded by Mark. Um, but it's the, uh, after much debate, most believe that it's the first and oldest gospel written. Uh, the early church kind of ignored it because it was the shortest one. They said, hey, uh, almost everything in the book of Mark you can find in Matthew or Luke with the exception of a few passages. And so most people kind of overlooked it, skipped it, um, but through research and whatnot, we've discovered that it was probably the first one written that Matthew and Luke used as they wrote theirs. So it's kind of the, the genuine, the original, uh, if you want to go there. But the other thing is it's not necessarily in chronological order. Generally it is, but if you see a discrepancy between others, uh, John Mark was not concerned with making sure everything was done exactly in the timeline that Jesus taught it. He was more concerned with making sure all of the important teachings were in there. So as you read through Mark, obviously John the Baptist in the beginning was first and Jesus' death was at the end, but the stuff in between, it reads like a journey. It starts off in Galilee, it ends in Jerusalem, and everything in between is on his way, where Jesus is moving from Galilee to Jerusalem. Um, so it's kind of, kind of cool. Of all four Gospels, it, it's closest to a biography in that it focuses purely on Jesus Christ. It's not worried about any of the any, any sub uh, conversations or any of those kinds of things. It really focuses on who is Jesus and what did he do. And so as you read through it, it's the one that reads more, most closely like a biography. So with all that being said, let's, um, let's just jump in. Uh, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark is telling us uh, what he thinks and believes, uh, which is really one of the only times that Mark interjects his thoughts uh, rather than it being just um, observations. And it's this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. You're like, wow, that didn't say much. It says a lot. First of all, the word, uh, the beginning of, reads very much like the Old Testament, in the beginning God created. Or when John says, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, He's starting off very similar, like, in the beginning of the good news. This is the beginning of the good news. And what's the good news? That Jesus is the Messiah, which we talked about last week, where Matthew proved that Jesus was the Messiah by referring to all the Old Testament prophecies and pointing to those in Jesus, having fulfilled those. Um, Mark doesn't really do that. There's one scripture after that from Isaiah which talks about the forerunner, John the Baptist, and he uses that to introduce John the Baptist. He's, not, he's taking it for, for granted that the readers understand Jesus is the Messiah. He also says, though, the Son of God. 
which is interesting. You say, well, it doesn't sound so interesting to me. But what, John, uh, what Mark is saying is this. He's saying Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised Savior, liberator, and establisher of peace that we find in the Old Testament. We talked about that last week. But then he says he's also the Son of God who has power and authority. And so he's combining the two here, saying that this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah, and he's also the Son of God with all power and all authority. Now, I just told you Matthew used the approach of looking at Old Testament prophecies and Jesus' fulfillment with that. Uh, but Mark takes a very different approach. Mark proves that Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God by what he did. In fact, in the first two chapters of Mark, listen to the actions Jesus took in just the first two chapters. He announces, he calls, he delivers, he teaches, he heals, he prays, he forgives, he defends. In the first two chapters of Mark, those are all the things Jesus did. He's, basically, Mark is saying that Jesus is a man of action. He's not just a good teacher who sits by, kumbaya, I've got good thoughts, come listen to me. Jesus is out there doing it. For instance, uh, the word immediately, or some translations would say at once, in the entire New Testament is recorded 87 times. 42 of those are in Mark. More than double than any other gospel. Matthew's the only other one that comes close, and Matthew says it 18 times. So Mark uses this, this uh, vocabulary of at once Jesus did this, or immediately Jesus did this. And he just talks about bang, bang, he's moving, he's doing, he's moving, he is doing. So it is what Jesus does that proves who he is. And we see the effects of this as, as Mark records, the effects of Jesus' doing and people seeing that it has on the people. Right off the get-go, we see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. Jesus teaches, and it says this, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So right there, they recognize this guy has authority where the other people don't. Verse 27, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. So what are the people recognizing? They're recognizing that Jesus has power and authority over things that they didn't realize people could have. He's speaking the word with authority and, and impure spirits, demons, whatever you want to call, submitted to him. They did what he told them to do. And it wasn't because Jesus told them, I have authority over demons. It's because Jesus had authority. They watched him have authority. So they instantly were amazed. As we walk through the book of Mark, we see a bunch of things. Jesus um, is healing. Uh, he's teaching his disciples. He's uh, um, arguing with the, the Pharisees and proving them to be in the wrong, he's basically in debating with them and coming out as the clear uh, forerunner on, on what he's teaching, right? 
he, put, he, he puts the, the Pharisees um, silent, basically. He's casting out demons. He's uh, talking about parables. And then in, in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus is with his disciples and he asks them this question. On the way, he asks them, who do people say I am? It's a great question, right? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And still others one of the prophets. So he's saying, hey, people are a little bit confused over who you are. But who do you say I am, he asked. Peter answered, you're the Messiah. How did Peter come to the conclusion that Jesus was the promised Messiah? It's not a trick question. He came to the conclusion Jesus was the Messiah, not because Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He came to the conclusion because he watched Jesus. He watched Jesus have authority over demons. He watched Jesus do miracles and heal people. He watched Jesus argue with the teachers of the law and show them where they were wrong. He watched Jesus have compassion on people. He watched Jesus' actions and came to the conclusion, this guy's the Messiah. Right? We continue to move on with Mark's gospel. And as we go through Mark's gospel, we see all kinds of things, right? Jesus walking on water, Jesus feeding thousands of people. We talked about this, like miracles and healings and all these kinds of things. We get to uh, the end of Jesus' life and his crucifixion. And if you walk through that story alone, is amazing at Jesus' responses. Pilate was amazed at Jesus' response. The Pharisees were amazed because he wouldn't defend himself, right? It was just thing after thing about he's not responding like normal people respond. He's sentenced to death, he's crucified on a cross, and he dies. And in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, it says this, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died... He said, surely this man was the Son of God. How did the centurion know that Jesus was the Son of God? He watched how he died. So all of Mark's gospel is this gospel of Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and he's proved it by his actions. Do you guys see that? Like, it's not that other people were saying he's the Messiah or that Jesus himself said he's the Messiah, although both are valid witnesses. Mark is focusing in and he's honing in on the fact that Jesus proved it by what he did. And it's important for us to understand that as we look at the different Gospels and how Jesus is portrayed. There's a reason that each author is writing from a particular angle. And Mark's, who's really through Peter's teachings, you can almost see Peter talking and telling these stories like, man, Jesus did this, and then Jesus did that, and then Jesus did this. And Jesus, uh, Peter was a simple guy. He was a fisherman. And so Mark proves that Jesus has power and authority by what he does. But Mark also focuses not on, on uh, that Jesus had power and authority, but he focuses on how Jesus used his power and authority. So not only is, yeah, he's the son of God, he has power and he has authority, he also brings into us how 
he used his power and authority. Here's the thing. Jesus uh, doesn't use his power and authority for his own benefit. He uses it for the benefit of others. And it, it culminates into the disciples having a conversation and Jesus teaching them in Mark chapter 10, verse 42 through 45. If you remember, the disciples liked to get into arguments about who was the best, you know, um, who had the bigger truck or who had the most touchdowns or all those kinds of things, right? So Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. What is he meaning? He mean, he's saying that those who are rulers are normally ruling for their own benefit. I rule you, you serve me for my benefit. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. First of all, there's a lot to unpack here. I'll do a teaching one day on this. This is a paradoxal statement. He is not saying that the road to greatness is servanthood. If you have some desire to be an awesome, great, above everybody else, go be a servant. It's a paradoxal statement that seems ridiculous to whoever heard it. Like, really? How can I become great if I'm a slave? That aside, he's, he's saying that servanthood is of value in the kingdom of God. And then he follows it up with this. For even the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just saying, listen, I, Jesus says, listen, I have all power and authority, heaven, earth. Uh, I, I, he's actually God. He's the Son of God. And he came to earth not to, hey, I'm going to rule this and you guys are going to uh, accomplish my purposes on this earth. He came to serve you and me. And you go, what, what do you mean God serves me? No, no, he's serving you, and this is the difference here. He's not coming to just serve our every whim. He's coming to use his power and authority for what's best for you and for me. There's a difference. This is why Mark shows Jesus to be the servant Messiah. Son of God with all power and authority, but comes to serve not to, not to get something from us, not to, not, not to lord it over us and for us to, uh, um, uh, not for his personal gain. God gains nothing in dying for us. This is a hard concept in our individualistic American society. Uh, God doesn't need you or me. He doesn't need us. Some say, well, he needs our praise. No, he doesn't. We need our praise to praise him. He didn't create you and me because God was insecure and needed people to sing his praises. He didn't need a world uh, to, you know, whoa. In fact, we're going to look at it. We were made for him and by him. But it's not because he needs us. God is secure in the Godhead. He already has community. He has everything he needs. We're, we're, we're not created because of some deficiency on God's part. So, so it doesn't benefit God at all 
for him to come and save us, direct us, be with us, serve us. It's completely a demonstration of God's love. And love in the sense of agape love, meaning a a love that serves, not not a love that takes. It's hard for us to understand that. Like, God really doesn't need me. And he benefits nothing from me. He does all the giving. And I do all the receiving. Which is why Mark says Jesus came, he's the Messiah, and he came to serve. And this, this is for a reason for us. It's, an, it's I'm not going to jump ahead of myself. So easy to do. Um, all of Mark is writing for a reason, uh, for you and I to understand some things. And for us... Um, Let's just jump into it. What does this mean for you and me? What does it mean that Jesus Christ came and he's the servant Messiah? That he's all-powerful, he has all the authority, he is the promised one from the Old Testament, he came and he demonstrated that by what he did, right? He, he did miracles, he did all of these things, and he proved to the people who listened to him, he proved to his own disciples, he even proved to the Roman centurion who killed him that he was the son of God. What does this mean for you and for me? Because it's a biography. Mark doesn't necessarily dig right in and say, this is why I'm writing this to you like Paul does. He just, this is Jesus' life. Three things. One, this means that God has come close. What do you mean, what do I mean by that? That the one who has all power, who has all authority, who gains nothing by coming to this earth in the form of a human being has decided to come close to you. You say, well, why is this even important? It's important because uh, our greatest need is the healing of our brokenness. And you might not know, you might not say, well, I'm not broken. This is the brokenness I'm talking about. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16, I just referred to it. It says, for in him all things were created. Talking about in, in Christ. Things in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So we were created for God. When, when, when Adam and Eve made the, made the choice that they did, brokenness came between the relationship between man and between God. We've been broken off and separated because of those things. There's a brokenness. And every single human woe, evils, pains, sufferings, insecurities, deformities, sicknesses, all of these things are a a, a system, uh, not a system, a symptom from that brokenness. All of those things occur because of that brokenness. So God, who is far away, who we can't bridge that gap to God because of our separation from him, has decided to come close to us. And and that might not get you excited, but you know, that's that's a bit like you creating the problem and drifting away, 
and having no means to come back, and God decides, you know what? Um, I'm going to bridge that distance. I'm going to come close because they can't. No matter how hard they try, there's nothing that they can do to bridge this gap. So God has come close to us. And his desire is to heal that brokenness and close that distance in that gap so that we can, made whole, we can be made whole. And that's, it doesn't get fully realized on this earth, but it will be realized, we talked about last week, when heaven, uh, when, not when heaven comes, when, when the last days come and what happens in the book of Revelation comes to pass and we're restored back to God, that, that healing becomes complete and, and permanent. But here in the now, when God comes close to us, he heals that broken piece so that we no longer begin to, to operate out of that brokenness. Um, we begin to operate out of wholeness or a measure of wholeness. I feel like I need to elaborate this point. I feel like this is a, dis, a disconnect for some folks. We all try to fill that brokenness with something. And we wonder why. So church is good at picking on people who fill it with alcohol or who fill it with drugs or who fill it with sex. But we all try to fill that brokenness. We try to fill it with power. We try to fill it with prestige. We fill it with it's our anger. Some of us fill that brokenness by eating. Some of us go shopping. Some of us invest in extreme sports. Like, Anything that will make me feel good and dull this pain from the brokenness between me and God. And so, somebody who's, who's drinking their pain away, like, you should be able to understand that because maybe you go shopping when you feel bad. It's the same. It's, it, it's exactly the same. Or, or maybe for your pain, you sit down and, and you eat an entire chocolate cake. Or an entire thing of ice cream because I just feel terrible today. And this is going to, man, I feel good when I eat this. Like I get a little dopamine thing, right? Like we picked on five guys last week. Like I'm just going to get a burger and a shake because it makes me feel better. That's no different than the person who runs down and grabs a bottle of liquor and sits on, on, on their couch and drinks themselves till they pass out. It all stems from the same brokenness or the desire for you to be recognized at any expense. I got to have a name for myself and I don't care who I step on. I don't care who I cross. I don't care that, like, it's, it's, it comes from your brokenness. All of it's the same. The root of it all is exactly the same. And so the person who has uh, you know, this issue that they have to identify with some, you know, fighter on TV or they got to have this macho bravado of like, yeah, I'm a real man. Like, stop it. You're broken. Knock it off. Or some woman who has to go out and get all kinds of surgeries because she has to look young and beautiful and attractive and all these kinds of things and like, knock it off. All those desires are because you're looking for that to make you feel good about yourself. It all comes from the brokenness. And so when we begin to deal with the brokenness, and that begins to get healed, and we stop focusing on the symptoms, and we stop telling people, you need to sober up. Why? 
their drinking is the solution to their brokenness. How about we heal the brokenness and then they'll want to stop drinking? Stop picking on the drinking. Stop picking on the drugs. And bring them Jesus. Understand that why they're drinking, why they're doing drugs, why they're overeating, why they're over shopping, why they're power hungry, grabbing, whatever's. Like, man, that's a broken person. Or, or when you want to, where we want to be judgmental on somebody, maybe remind ourselves that we have an area of brokenness too that we're filling with something. Binging Netflix. Yeah, I mean, right? It's, think about it. I am, I am, and I need to. When you're depressed and having a bad day, where do you turn? Where do you turn? Most of us don't turn to Jesus first, right? Most of us go, ugh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch my favorite season of whatever, or I'm going I'm to go out to eat, or I'm going to fill in the blank. It's a question to ask you, uh, where you what you're using to fill your brokenness. We all have activities that are fun, that we're not necessarily relying on, that we enjoy. I'm not talking about enjoyment. I'm talking about those things that when you're not frustrated, you're not depressed, you're not whatever, you have con- a control over them and you don't participate, but then as soon as you are having a bad whatever, you turn to it. That's, that's your thing. And so when you discover that about yourself, you'll be able to see it in, in other people around you as well. And you'll be able to step in and help with the brokenness instead of the symptom. Because if I have a headache, or if I'm bleeding out, like, like a Band-Aid doesn't help it. Finding out why I'm bleeding out. I take an aspirin, that doesn't solve the source of my headache, it helps me feel better. But the source of the headache still exists. We understand this, like, but we're good at, as a society about medicating ourselves and dealing with the symptoms instead of the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is the brokenness we have in our relationship with God. And when we restore that, the symptoms begin to take care of themselves. And that's what Jesus is concerned of. He came close because he discovered that you and I were filling that gap with everything but him. And so he came close to us and said, let me help you. Here's the root of the problem. I'm right here next to you. And that's what Mark is telling us, that Jesus is a man of action, he came from heaven, he has all power and authority, and he's right next to you. You don't have to to do a whole lot. Thank you, Jesus. Let's move on. I've, I've hammered that enough. I just felt like, I don't understand what you're talking about, Pastor. Um... There's so much in the scripture, I could just tell, like, why do you think the, the, the um, in scripture, where, Paul, where, where it talks about that the, the, the prostitutes 
and, and the lepers are entering heaven ahead of the Pharisees. Because the, the prostitute and the leper and the sinful people all recognize their brokenness and, and receive from God to fill that brokenness. But the Pharisees were like, I'm okay. And he says, no, you're a whitewashed tomb. You're all kind of broken inside, but you're pretending you're not. So, sorry. I just, it's my rant against the church. It's my rant against the church. Because what we've created as a society, a church society, now I'm not talking about faith assembly, I'm talking about the greater church, is we've created this system of recognize your, your sin and your pain, come inside, and let's paint it over so you look good. But let's not deal with what's going on inside your heart. Let's not actually heal that brokenness. Let's just all pretend. Am I right? How many of us have, have come to church and said, I don't feel like I can be honest? I don't feel like I can share with anybody that I'm struggling, that I'm upset about God. I can't tell anybody in the church that my kid just came out of the closet. Right? I'm going to be judged. I'm going to be this. Why? We somehow figure out, like, whitewash ourselves so that we walk in the church and say, I'm good. Like, woohoo, go home. We've, we've the great pretend. That's not why Jesus came to die. He came so he could be transformed. And this, the church is supposed to be a community where that can happen, where people walk side by side and don't say, oh, you're walking with a limp, huh? You realize you're broken and bleeding out as you yourself are bleeding out. So God came to remove gossip. He came to remove judgment. He came to remove all of those things. And it's important that I, say, I call them out in front of us and say these are not the way of Christ. Love is the way of Christ. Second thing that Mark tells us, we see in Mark chapter 3, verses uh, 14 through 15, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. God shared his power and authority. You go, what? He shares his power and his authority with his followers. It's all through the New Testament. I don't want to hear any nonsense that there's no power and authority available to believers. It's a lie. God has equipped you with power and authority to carry out his work. Don't let the devil lie to you anymore that you're some sort of just weak, my sin gets in the way, all these kinds of things. It's garbage. Look at Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Like, well, pastor, that's just the twelve disciples. No, well, let's look at Mark 13. He's telling a parable about what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge. The Greek word in charge is gives them power and authority. So he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Each with their own assigned tasks. So he gives us power and authority 
to do the task he's given us to do. And he leaves. And he says, I've given you authority and power to do that. You say, well, that's, maybe that's a parable. Well, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends 72 disciples out with power and authority. They come back and like, whoa, demons even obey us. And he says, hey, don't rejoice over that. Rejoice over this. But it's proof that the 72 had power and authority. And then Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth are mine, therefore Go. And then certainly you could read the book of Acts where, where Jesus says, hey, wait in Jerusalem till you receive power and then go. And the entire book of Acts is men and women under the power of God just doing amazing things with power and authority. Here's, here's the, the thing we need to know from this, that God has given you his power and his authority if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Let let me use a different word. God himself lives in you. Because the Holy Spirit is God. So God himself lives in you. As Paul would say, so you don't have to do the things of this world, but you can do the things of the Spirit. He's given you the power and the authority to live. Uh, We're talking about, man, I am way off today. I am sorry. Um, If Mark is Peter's memoirs, right, in, see, God spoke to me and said, "Don't, don't bring up your little notes, bring the actual Bible up today. Because uh, it's easier. Um, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. If Mark is Peter's memoirs, listen to Peter in his letter. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. God's given you power to live the life God has called you to live, invited you to live personally, corporately, and in community. So, one, God has come close. Two, he shares his power and authority. Three, Jesus left us an example to follow. That's this. That Jesus walked in power and authority for the sake of others. We read that in Mark chapter 10, 42 through 45. He didn't come for his own benefit. He came for our benefit. So he gives us, he says, hey, the power and the authority I've given you, I've given you not for, for your own benefit, but for the benefit of others. Now, we know that his power and authority in us is for our benefit in helping us live a godly life. But how we exercise that power and authority should be for the benefit of others. And I know I've touched, I've, I've, I've um, walked on toes today, but uh, when you pursue the American dream, at the expense of other people, you're not walking in the light of Christ. When you exercise your rights or your freedoms and it causes harm to other people, you are not following Christ's example. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, 
If you have the right to, I mean, I have the right to do this and this, but it brings harm to somebody else. You're not following the example of Christ. Yes, we have rights, we have freedoms, we have authority, we have power, but God, through his, uh, the example of Jesus Christ in the, in the book of Mark, it's not given to us for our own exaltation, for our own benefit, for our own comfort in life. It's given for the sake of others. That's why Paul writes extensively about this. If me exercising my, his rights or his freedoms as an apostle or even a Christian causes somebody else's faith to stumble, he's not going to do it. Church, that's the example Jesus Christ gave us. If you exercising your right, your freedom, your pursuit of happiness, all these kinds of things, is at the expense of somebody else, you need to rethink what you're doing. Because Jesus left us an example to follow. The second thing is, the example he gave us was, he was a person of action. He wasn't, just, he wasn't all talk. He was in action. He was actively doing the will of God on a regular basis. He came to heal our brokenness so we could live differently. You say, well, what does this mean? This means adopting a different worldview instead of values, God's. That you live your life. Uh, God isn't something you just add to your already busy existence. Being a follower of Jesus Christ means I am changing my worldview completely. I'm going to live my life through the lens of Jesus Christ. Through his teachings, through his values, through what he leads, me to be, leads us to be. And I believe that when I do that, I will find my brokenness with God healed and I will find the promises of God come to fruition and I'll make an impact for God or in the people around me. But if we just think that we're going to take our faith with God and put it in our back pocket as like a, the Monopoly get-out-of-jail-free card, none of the things written in Scripture, the promises, the joy, the happiness, any of those things are, you're ever going to realize because it only comes when we're people of action and we actually change our life and worldview to be like that of Jesus, Jesus Christ. It's all in. I've used the poker example many times. And then we live out these values daily. We put to action the values that we receive from Jesus Christ and how we've, he's changed our life. And we decide to live out of those values daily and how we approach our family, how we approach our neighbors, how we approach our workplace. And I'm winding us up. I want to challenge you. Um, went too far. Jesus proved by what he did that he was the Messiah and the Son of God. That's, that's what Mark is telling us. It's by his actions he proved this. And when we allow Jesus to change us, we prove him to be true to the world around us. And so I, wanna, I have two challenges for us today. One, that if you were led to Jesus with the, um, I almost said lie, it's not necessarily a lie, but the, uh, the not full version of Jesus, and that was like, hey, if you give your, 
If you say yes to Jesus and say the sinner's prayer, you can escape hell and go to heaven. And that's how you came to Jesus. Um, It's a true statement, but it's not fully what that means. I want to challenge you to adopt Jesus' way of life as your worldview. Not, not assemblies of God's worldview, not a Baptist worldview, not a Reformed theology, not a Catholic theology, not any of those theologies, but Jesus Christ. How he lived, how he walked, how he taught. Say, that's going to be my worldview, and that's what I'm working towards in my life. I challenge you to adopt his review and, and align your values with his values. How you think, how you believe, and how you live out would be synonymous with who Jesus was. That's the real Christian life. For those who say, I think I'm on, I'm on that road. I want that. Awesome. It doesn't happen overnight. Like we said, the devil comes in, life happens, all these kinds of things happen. We're constantly, which is why we come to church, resetting ourselves and saying, okay, God, I want to be more like you. Help me to be that way. I want to give you a practical challenge for the next week. And that's this. Every day this week, find at at least one person to bless. So what do you mean by bless? Bless. Buy their coffee. You stand in line at Dunkin' Donuts, you buy the person's coffee in front of you or behind you. You just bless them. You give somebody a genuine compliment. Maybe you forgive them. They do something that was stupid, they say, I'm really sorry, you don't hold a grudge. You say, you know what, it's okay. Maybe you just pay them a visit. Maybe somebody's lonely. You just call them up and say, I was thinking about you today. How you doing? You just have a conversation. Maybe you watch their kids for them so they can have some free time. Or rake their yard. Or, like, hopefully this is just wetting your whistle and you guys know what it means to bless somebody. But every day, wake up and say, Lord, show me somebody to bless today. Because that is using your strength your power for the benefit of somebody else. Because if you don't think your words carry real power, they do. You know how you know? When somebody makes a negative comment about you to you, does that just fall off the table and you go, Psst. no, right? You're angry about it for hours, if not days. Because it carries weight just as your positive blessings and affirmations and words are restorative. You're using what you have for the benefit of somebody else. And then as things happen, I would love to hear your stories. Giving God like, hey, I, I complimented this person, I did this, and this happened, I felt great, it was amazing, like, whatever that is. But every day this week, starting tomorrow morning, or even after we leave church today, You know, maybe give your waitress a really big tip and a compliment. You know, if you were a waitress or waiter and somebody gave you a huge tip and said how awesome they thought you were, like that would carry you the whole day, wouldn't it? 
Anyway, I've preached long. Um, I'm going to close this in prayer. My hope is today leaving that you will understand that Jesus proved himself to be the Messiah and Son of God by what he did. We have this saying in society, words are cheap, right? Anybody can make any claim they want about themselves. But it's proved by how they live it out. And Jesus lived out who he said he was. He proved who he said he was. And he asks us to do the same thing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you came close to us, that there was this uncrossable gap between us and you. And you, motivated by love, completely for our benefit, bridged that gap to come close to us. We are eternally grateful for that, Lord. My prayer is that every single person in this place would recognize that and invite you into their lives and and allow their lives to be transformed by you so that we reflect who you are in our thought, in our speech, and in our actions. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit that lives in us would empower us with the same authority and power to live the life that you've invited us to live, not only in our internal health, but, Lord, in our external actions. And, Lord, may we prove to the world around us that you are who you said you are because of the changes you've made in our lives. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We pray for those who are at home, who are sick, who are listening to this. Lord, may your Holy Spirit be with them this morning as well. We praise you in your name. Amen. Amen, church. God bless you. Thanks for hanging in there with me. Um, It's easy to preach about Jesus. Have a good day.